Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon, and my guest with you today is Dr. Ajay Kumar. Dr. Ajay Kumar, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Oh, and and listeners, uh, you know, we've had a few guests on here before talking about things in, in the medical world, and and uh, you'll remember Anthony Casablanca, a two-time guest on the show, talking about uh, grief and leadership in, in times of grief. And, and I think Dr. Ajay Kumar does a really good job of marrying those two themes. But before we get into that discussion, what I want you to know uh, about him is he is awarded, has been awarded the prestigious Erston Young Startup Entrepreneur of the Year Award, as well as had case studies on HCG uh, done. Dr. Jay Kumar has given several talks at the Harvard Business School and Babson Business School, and he encourage and mentor other doctors and entrepreneurs in their own specialties. Today, under his leadership, cancer care in India has seen a paradigm shift, and cancer care has been redefined as a chronic disease. Being a social entrepreneur and philanthropist, he has incepted several NGOs engaged in phenomenal, in phenomenal developmental work in the Gundlapet district, Karnataka. Uh, I think I probably completely messed up that pronunciation there, but that was my Southern swing at it. Uh, His organizations have till date provided financial aid for needy cancer patients, empowered 20,000 women through microfinance, sponsored the education of 550 children, besides striving to eliminate and prevent social ills. Uh, Dr. Ajay Kumar is also an avid marathon runner and reader and author. And his uh, new book, which is uh, something we're going to use as kind of a background for a lot of our conversation here, uh, is Excellence Has No Borders, How a Doctorpreneur Created a World-Class Cancer Hospital Chain. Dr. Ajay Kumar, with all of that, and, and it is a lot, and I, I wanted to read all of that just so people really understood who we are talking here today. Uh, but I'm really curious to hear how you answer that first question where I start off all of my guests. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that look like to you? Thanks, Earl, for the introduction. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, when you say responsible leadership, I always try to differentiate between a leader and a responsible leader. You know, a leader is somebody who uh, gets to be in a position where people have trust, people believe uh, that he is doing the right thing. But a lot of times a leader may be very selfish, self-centered, 
and looks at what is good for them and you know and somehow manages to reach that position where really he or she is looking after their own interests in the guise of being a leader in my view a responsible leadership is one who really looks after the people who have made him or her a leader you know whether it could be a, a politician whether it could be a doctor or uh, any profession i believe a responsible leader is one who looks after the interests of others more than himself or herself that is how i would like to define and always reflective on this i think one of the most important things i believe we have to look at is whether we are uh, like you know we are whether we are a intuition or whether we have a reflective intuition whether we look at things and reflect and see what is the really the right thing to do in my view uh, the right thing to do is uh, depends on your conscience and i believe the conscience is our keeper so responsible leader is one who always tests what is what he or she is going to do with his conscience you know even for example you know we always talk about uh, taking shortcuts in life to to achieve things is that the right thing we always talk about you know um, maybe fibbing the truth not telling the truth or uh, to to make to take an advantage we say what we think we should say at that time rather than saying what is the right thing you know i always believe uh, as a responsible leader the the means is more important than the end you know there is a old saying that does end justify the means i don't believe the road is more important the right path the right royal path is more important than what is the end the end is always of course keeps moving what the goal we want to achieve so a responsible leader is taking the right path and reflecting and making sure that it is titrated against his other conscience mm. No, I really love that. That is a great response to that. And I, I agree with everything you said. And I love the conscience piece there. Because, um, you know, I think that is one that, that a lot of leaders are kind of uncomfortable with uh, infusing their own sense of consciousness into their decision making. Uh, but in reality, I think that's the only way that you can be a responsible leader is is yeah. when you really grasp who you are and what leadership means to you instead of trying to be someone else. Absolutely. Um, and you know, something yeah. you do for short term gain and you know, like for example, if somebody, you know, distorts the truth in the end, you have to live with it and you know, your conscience is always pricking, you know? So I think you have to really uh, uh, reflect, think, and uh, and really go by what you think is right after you put it to test uh, i think that is a responsible leader uh, in my view that is what it makes you also a great leader and the great leader is something which is not necessarily mean others appreciate and you know most important thing is you have to feel comfortable with yourself what you have done if you stand in front of a mirror and say man did i do the right thing if you feel that is what you have done the right thing then you know truly you you are a responsible leader mm, i like that i like that a lot um so i, I kind of want to 
start off kind of the 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 journey here a little bit for folks because it's it's an interesting uh story from what I've been able to put together but I'm I'm really kind of curious about this piece. Um you know, cancer care is is I mean it's not for the faint of heart. So what got you really interested in this this field of medicine? Yeah. <clears throat> See what happened was when I uh, you know, when I Im- immigrated to U.S. in 1975, I was uh, always like challenges. In my med school, I always wondered, I liked cardiology, but I always wondered why uh, people with cancer at that time had to go through a lot of pain and suffering, why we didn't have an answer. So when I was in University of Virginia, Charlottesville, I went through the rotation process where I started questioning my uh, consultants, professors, why is it we are not able to come up with a plan of treatment for cancer? Unlike cardiology or uh, other subjects, we know cancer cells come within you. And we didn't know the reasons at that time. And cancer was an enigma, even today to some extent it is. But for me, I I loved the challenge. I always, in my med school also, I like challenges. I was always for underdogs. So really it kind of, when I met patients, seeing them go through the process and seeing them, they're called terminal or, you know, looking at the hospice care and all that, it really, you know, kind of uh, internally, I revolted against this and I felt it is not right. They are human beings. They they deserve a better approach and we need to go to the root cause of it. That is when I asked my professor, I want to go to the center where I can really get learned about it, even research about cancer. That is when he told me, half jokingly, who knows, you may even get into MD Anderson, which was the biggest cancer center even today in the in the world today in Houston. But I, you know, I, of course, I applied at that time. There were no emails or anything. So I just applied. Unfortunately, you know, they said uh, they, they didn't have any position for three more years, but asked me to come for interview. So when I went there for interview, my, I might have impressed them, but immediately they offered me a post as a senior fellow. And that was a game changer for me because I saw people coming from all over the world, uh, coming with uh, as a destination, last hope. I saw people coming with advanced disease and people willing to go through experimental treatment, what we call as phase one. That changed the whole aspect of why I took cancer and really gave me that confidence that, look, if we have to win the war on cancer, it's a long term. And what I believe today, what I believed at that time is right treatment at the first time, analyzing, spending time is the answer. Each cancer patient, we have to take care of them as though they are my own brother, sister, father or mother. This With this approach, I started the looking at cancer patients and that is what led has led me to this 45 years of cancer journey and putting up centers not you know center not only US but I gave up came back to India to really start this hub and spoke model of oncology. Mm. Yeah no and, and again so much that you said there and and you know I want my listeners to to really you know, focus on this because, you know, again, like I mentioned, we've had some folks on here before talking about uh, grief leadership and, and and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, that is really kind of what you're talking about there uh, is, you know, these folks are coming to you uh, really in their, their darkest hours most of the time. Right. 
uh, especially at that that stage at, at that facility. I mean, and, and I can't think of anybody listening right now who would go and get a cancer diagnosis and not just get hit in the face with this wave of grief and emotion. And, and you had the, the, the foresight and the insight at the same time to realize, Hey, we, we need to treat these folks better. Yeah. And, and that has a direct tie in uh, to the, the prognosis, right? How well we treat the patient dictates their, their kind of path uh, of recovery and, and response. Well, I'd like to give you a couple of examples. See, the uh, uh, year was 1979. I had started my practice uh, outside of Chicago, three hours west of Chicago. From scratch, I started. And uh, doctor, as the surgeon, Dr. Allen, had introduced me to a patient and uh, I even today remember the, the room she was in. And I went to s- talk to her. And uh, she was uh, uh, literally in a very depressive mood. And, uh, and I started talking about treatment. She had a breast cancer, which has metastasized to bone. And she was in a lot of pain. Uh, when I started talking about the treatments and how we can get her into remission, I, I just can see her eyes, you know, with sparks, with smile on her face. As You mean to say I am not terminal? I said, no. I think at this point, Phyllis, we, are, we have various treatments. I may not cure, but we don't cure a lot of diseases. We don't cure diabetes. We don't cure blood pressure. So many renal problems. So I, I said you are likely to go into remission. She had two things. Look, I had great aspirations in life to go cross-country skiing in Colorado, to see my, uh, you know, uh, family in Ireland. You know, originally her family came from Ireland. I want to go and look after my, look at my distant relatives. So I said we will accommodate all that. And to make it very short, in the next eight years, uh, I, you know, she did everything she wanted to do. And in 1986-87, she had a disease recurrence in the lung and, you know, she didn't want any experimental treatment. And uh, I was traveling, I went, you know, and I got a word that uh, she really wants to see me. I went back to Burlington and it was a Sunday evening. She was coughing and she said, I just wanted to thank you. In eight years, I've achieved everything in life I wanted to. And that night she died. So all mm. I want to say is, you know, nobody is immortal. And we want to achieve our goals. And when we see a cancer patient, instead of saying that you are stage four, you are terminal, you require this, we have to look at how do we give them good quality of life? What are the present day treatments which can do that? And how they can lead a normal life as long as possible and achieve their goals. That has been my you know, journey. And when I saw what is what I did in US, when I saw how things were different in India, in 1985, I spent six months traveling across India, seeing cancer centers, the great disparity. That is when I decided I got to come back to the place and really try to make a change. And today I'm very proud to say that with 25 centers, hub and spoke, center of excellence, we have brought the cancer care in India, bringing in high technology like linear accelerator, PET scans, genomic treatment, we have now brought treatment to these areas on par with the best of centers in the world. And that is what makes you know, your whole journey fruitful. And you, know, you feel 
like I was talking about our own conscience, you feel like you've done the right thing. And that is why I get that immense satisfaction of taking up oncology, a challenging field, and still it is challenging. You know, a lot of things are not known, how cancer behaves, why people get cancer back, what, what is the natural history of the disease, what is the right treatment. But having even seeing one patient, like what I told about my first patient there, and achieve the goals, it's very satisfying. And, you know, it feels like, you know, you are giving back something for which you are well-trained. Mm. Now that is uh, that is an amazing story, and and thank you for sharing that. And 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 you know, again, that's the one thing through this podcast, and and having the discussions I've had, kind of on this topic. And and you are a great addition to that already. So thank you for being uh, here and being a guest and pushing this conversation even further. But I really want my listeners, you know, especially those entrepreneurs in the C-suite. These things that, that, that Dr. Ajay Kumar has been talking about here, keep in mind, folks, this could be happening to the people in your organization right now. These are the types of situations that they're in outside of the normal daily stressors of the job. And while the doctor has a responsibility to, you know, kind of provide the right path of care, you know, leaders have a responsibility to provide a right path of care as far as taking care of them as, as the person, as the employee. And, and I'm kind of curious uh, if you've ever really kind of noticed or seen any kind of correlation between how well a leader takes care of the person going through treatment at work and how they're able to respond to treatment, you know, like taking some of that stress away from the job, being um, as lenient as possible with, you know, sick leave and, and benefits and, you know, just really taking care of the person on that side while you take care of the health side. Is there any correlation there? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think uh, <clears throat> the difference between a leader, a trusted, uh, you know, employer is that how he cares for his people. You know, whether it is uh, your own staff, patients, like I said in the beginning, uh, they, they have to become part of the family. It's not just patient and their family, but also your all staff. And you have to really think about what would, uh, what would Phyllis say? What would, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, what would the genes think about it? You have to place yourself in their position and see how you can address that so that I always believe whenever I discuss with anyone, I would like to sit in your chair, you sit in my chair. I think that is, in my view, is the hallmark of a true leader, understanding both positions. So like when I came back to India, I started looking at centers and I have various partners. You know, it's not easy to build 25 cancer centers. Nobody has done that in the world like what we have done. And the amazing thing is when you start talking to doctors, partners, when you say that I take your position, you take mine, let us discuss pros and cons, it works out beautifully. Same thing with the employees. You know, in, in CG, we have over 7,000 employees. And how do you address these issues? What are their, uh, you know, how do they face a new nurse coming into oncology? How does she deal with cancer patients? How do you, what are the mental stress they have? And how do you address them so that they feel comfortable taking care of it? That is the hallmark of a leader. 
you know, but majority of the time in my uh, several decades of experience, I have seen, you know, the administration management is more about, you know, uh, uh, putting systems in place and, uh, and looking at what are the financial returns and what is the, what are the things happening. More than that, we should look at employee satisfaction. And uh, of course, the most important thing is uh, patient-centric. You have to be very patient-centric. The whole organization should look at the patient. And the patient satisfaction will not happen unless the employee satisfaction is there. And how do you reward them? How do you take care of their needs? And even, even look after their family. What are the issues they face? How do you do counseling? These are all very important parameters for to be a successful organization and obviously a successful leader. I think uh, these are the things a lot of times we don't reflect. And admit, sometimes the management are also look at more exploitation. What I mean is, I have a system, I have now become the new CEO, I am the now head of this. How do I use the system which is already there? Rather than looking at creativity, how do I kind of, you know, uh, uh, exploration. How do I explore for new things? How do you bring about better satisfaction among the patients? And these are more and the staff. I think these are the things uh, which which uh, sets a successful organization and a leader apart from others. You know, I always like to give example. When you become very system oriented, like you look at today, for example, General Electric or some extent IBM and differential between that and Google's or Facebook, you, you have to really take a chance. You have to look at going outside the box thinking. Uh, and particularly in a field like oncology, I feel unless you do that, unless you look at research, what are new things happening? How do you break protocols? How do you look at, I know somebody, some patient tells me the protocol is saying that you are only 50% survival. This is not acceptable for me. Out of 100 patients I treat, only 50 are going to respond. Why should I give the treatment? Why not do some trial to add something else to that and make it longer? You know, this is where as a doctor, as a doctorpreneur and being an entrepreneur, I think uh, to some extent I've succeeded when, by bringing about this lateral thinking. That has helped me a lot uh, to really achieve some of the goals. Mm. Uh, No, I love that. That is a great response to that question and and a lot of outstanding points. I think this is a great spot here to kind of uh, go into commercial break and continue the conversation uh, on the other side there. How does that sound, doctor? Sounds good. All right, folks, we will be right back. All right, folks, here we are uh, back on the Responsible Leadership Podcast uh, with Dr. Ajay Kumar. Uh, Beforehand, Dr. had a great um, answer to kind of how leadership and medical care and all those things are intertwined. So I highly encourage you, if you missed that uh, or you should listen to it again, rewind, go back and listen to that because that was an outstanding response. Uh, Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you have a book out called Excellence Has No Borders, How a Doctorpreneur Created a World-Class Cancer Hospital Chain. Uh, 
Now, first of all, it's the first time I've heard that term, doctorpreneur. I like that. Um, is that a term you came up with or is it something that, that you found somewhere? No, I came up with the term <laughs> because of being a doctor, we always go into taking care of patients. But when you become an entrepreneur with the sole intention of providing better care to the patient in the, at a larger scale, I thought we should combine the two and call it a doctorpreneur. Well, and, and again, I love it because it is what what I love about that word and, and kind of your mission is, you know, I've worked with some uh, nonprofits before. Nonprofits, the one thing that always drives me kind of crazy is they they have this outstanding noble purpose that they're trying to to change the world with, but they're scared to make money for fear of them looking like a fraud or fear of them looking like they're trying to cash in on the cause that they're trying to help. And you've really kind of married those two concepts. You've got a great noble purpose, um, but you're not afraid to make money so you can use that money to further that mission, right? Yeah, I want to explain on that a little bit. Uh, uh, I'll see, Please do. People always talk about a charitable, non-profit, for-profit. When I gave the talk at Harvard uh, to the business school, I asked one question. What is the real difference between a non-profit and for-profit? See, when you really look at it, in, in more so in healthcare, uh, everybody has to pay salaries. Everybody has to. Everybody charges the patients. You don't do it free. Uh, you all collect whatever the insurance pays or the patient pays. And you know the the difference is supposed to be that the trustees don't get paid. Uh, whereas in for-profit, the directors are, you know, they may be paid, but the CEOs and all get paid both places. But in for-profit, you give out dividends. But HCG model, that's what I told them, is that we don't give any dividends. We don't give. We flow the money back into the system so that we can buy better technology and get better talent. So really, there is no difference. The only thing is private equity people's, the, the people who want to own the stock, they may buy and they may sell depending on the value of the stock. But we are not involved in it. We really look at how do we flow the money back into the system, positive cash flow we have, so that we can expand the care we provide. So the last 20 years, I'm very proud to say, 25 years, we have not given any dividends, flowed the money back into the system, whereby we have been able to bring in great technology, great talent, and collect the data so that we have become one of the premier cancer centers, group of centers in the world. And that is what gives us the satisfaction that, you know, and people who invest, obviously, you know, they are a stakeholder, but they are satisfied because they get better valuation. Somebody else comes and buys them. So they are happy. The patients are happy as a stakeholder because Without any government help, government involvement, we are able to provide. And best thing is we don't refuse treatment to anyone. We are able to accommodate them. And as doctor, I am satisfied because I got the professional satisfying to the right thing for the patient at the right time. So it is best of both worlds. And this is the model I've actually talked about in the book and published also. And I think this is a model for the future where, you know, honestly, you can use so much of money available in the world for the right cause and it can have a great social impact. I call it the impact fund. Uh, this is where I am headed even in the future. 
Yeah. No, I, and again, I love it. It's, it's, uh, I, I hadn't heard that, that term that, uh, you, you were talking about there, but, you know, I've, I've kind of really, uh, kind of coalesced around the term conscious capitalism, right? It's, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. It's okay to be a capitalist. It's okay to want to make money. It's just not okay to want to make money at the expense of other people. You want to make it for the benefit and of other people. You, how you use that money? If you throw right. the money back into the system, you know, I, I think, you know, I call it capo, capo altruism. You know, capitalism, you know, you want to be altruistic, you want to do things. When you combine the two, I think that is the best of model where you're not really going after people and saying, hey, I'm doing this great job. Give me some grant or money. You know, I don't believe in it. I believe that, you know, we want to do it everything ourselves from scratch. And this model, what I have created, shown that it can be done. Yes. No, I love it in in a hundred percent. And folks, if you take nothing else out of out of the book and out of this discussion, that is a solid gold piece right there. Don't be afraid uh, to make money. Just make sure you're doing the right things and good things with the money that you're making. Um, I, I got to ask here because I, I like the title of the book because uh, I, I believe it's a true statement. Excellence has no borders, but why did you pick that as the title of the book? Yeah, it's a good question. Because when I went to U.S., you know, uh, coming from India, practicing near Chicago, uh, I think uh, one of the things uh, when I started, I was not sure how I will succeed uh, after training in MD Anderson. Uh, And within one year, uh, you know, I became so busy seeing 150 patients a day. day and even though i was not uh, i was considered you know uh, for indian origin people came because of the type of treatment and quality i provided soon i have to get partners so what it told me was look if you are very good in what you are it doesn't matter where you are from now i now take it back to india a few decades later when when i started putting up centers in india I, I looked at, people always said, we are, a, we are not an advanced country, we can't afford high technology. But I always came up with one answer. Look, cancer doesn't know rich from poor. Cancer knows only one thing, right treatment at the right time, we can, can conquer it, otherwise we cannot. So I started debating this with, uh, with the doctors here, hospitals saying, we have to get the best of technology. It doesn't matter. Whether it is America or India, if there are no borders, we have to bring the right technology. So I fought to bring in right technology and we were trendsetters in it, bringing linear accelerators, PET scanners and genomic work and showed clearly that if you do excellent treatment, it has no borders. It can and even rich and poor, you can create a bridge to treat everyone. No, we can create a, a cross subsidy. So everybody can be treated the right way. So that is why I know my son-in-law actually helped me, Eric. Uh, he said that is the right name. So I really loved the name he came up with. So we said, let's name it as Excellence as No Borders. Because in the world today, we always think, you know, we like to put borders. You are an underdeveloped country. You are an emerging market. You are an advanced country. We are that people. But truly, I think it is the people factor. It is the people are people everywhere and people love, uh, people are majority of honest. So I think when you look at it that way, 
I, I think if you're excellent in India, if excellent in US, it doesn't matter. You can do what you think is the right. Oh, uh, yes, that is another great soundbite there because you are 100% correct. Excellence is excellence. I, I love that. Um, and I'm kind of interested there because you mentioned like when you brought this idea, like you had a lot of convincing to do. Like, I mean, this sounds like a no brainer. This sounds like something that you should have just like as soon as you start say, hey, I want to do this and we're going to make have this impact on people's lives. Who's on board? People should have just been rushing to say, hey, Dr. Uh, Ajay Kumar, yes, let's do this. But you, you had people kind of pu- uh, pushing back a little bit. Very much so, because. The, the psyche of the people was different at that time because, you know, India was still at that point just emerging and a lot of things were, were public sector controlled. Private enterprise was not big. And for me to do in private enterprise, you know, honestly, even my own family, uh, you know, uh, uh, part of my family opposed it. And, you know, of course, a lot of doctors uh, said this is, a, this is a recipe for failure. You will not succeed because nobody has ever succeeded. Uh, People might have done one hospital on their own, but to do something like, you know, multiple hospitals across the country, a lot of naysayers. But my DNA is such more the naysayers, more I want to do it. You know, that is the that is how I took the challenge. And I, I felt very good I because I, I don't really fear failure. Uh, I don't fear failure. And a failure also is, is a learning. You know, you should celebrate failure also. Why not? And so I really like in the book I've written when I lost $20 million, I thought the whole deal is gone, my God, or my son's sickness. Mm. I said, what am I? No, he has muscular dystrophy. And uh, people in university in U.S. told me he is not going to live beyond 16. Uh, I took it myself and my wife accepted it. But at that time, even today, there is no treatment for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But we took it. But today, I'm very happy to say he's 32, doing very well, even though he is in a wheelchair. He's done his master's in psychology. And he actually edited part of the book and helped me a lot. And he's a great source of inspiration for all of us in the family. Similarly, when I lost 20 million, I said, I'm doomed. But I said, I told my wife, I woke her up at 2 o'clock in the night in Boston, we were and on the ocean. I said, look, I'm going to do all this and resurrect back, come back and try to move to India. So, you know, came back and did a lot of things after that. So it gives you that great inner strength when you come out of these failures. And that is what drives you today and uh, and gives you that full satisfaction. And you think some point, some point, of course, you begin to think you're invincible, but you have to tone it down, you know. Well, no, and but I think that is the the right mentality. I love that because I'm I'm the same way. I remember, uh, you know, growing up in Northeast Tennessee, not a lot of opportunities in my hometown. Um, you know, and telling folks, hey, I'm going to go join the military, and everybody was like, yeah, you're not cut out for the military. I'm like, well, I'll show you. Not only am I going to join the military, but I'm going to Marine Corps. I'm going to go for the hardest one, right? Um, and and that I, I have that same mentality every. The easiest way to get me to succeed at something is to tell me I can't do it, and and, and I'm going to figure it out. That is exactly what I tell my everyone. Unfortunately, I have great family support also, you know, because of the way it is. You know, my wife, children, and all great support, and they they believe in this, like uh, going through this course, like what you said. Uh, very very true. That always it's easier to say I can't do it, then the matter is closed. But when you say I will do it, your your path starts then. You're, you know, your yeah. you, you, then you start your work. Your heavy lifting starts then. 
but that is phenomenal to enjoy that heavy lifting and that is what i love and uh, that is where i think i even credit my family for all the support yeah no i i and again i like that it reminds me there's an old uh, quote attributed to uh, i think henry ford it says whether you believe you can or believe you cannot you're probably right correct uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Good so, yeah, no. So, um, you know, what, you, you've got, you said 20, I think 25, 26 hospitals up. You're, you're still in the process of, of building more hospitals? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, we are, uh, we, we kind of uh, take care of, we can take care of up to about, uh, you know, close to um, uh, 50 million population or more, and we are to expand across the northern part of India. We are in uh, very strong in south, western, and eastern, and we are looking at uh, expansion also in Africa. We have one center in Nairobi, and wherever yeah. wherever there is a need, we want to expand and show what can be done. And the most important thing is we want to make these training centers and so others can follow and do their own thing, you know, because uh, we, once you set the path, others will follow. And that is what has happened in India. When we first started putting linear accelerators, we were the first ones. Today, you know, there are a lot of people who are doing it, which is great for the community. And we penetrated tier two, tier three cities. And that is my goal. You know, it is most important thing is to show what you can do so others can follow. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, it, it just takes me back. And I've shared this story on here before because I think there's a lot of great lessons outside of the medical world. But uh, uh, you know, you're probably familiar with the the story of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis um, uh, back in, in Budapest with just wanting people to start washing their hands back in the, the, the late 1800s. Um, and, and I think you're, you're kind of doing the, the same thing now, right? You're uh, you're showing people that it can be done and people are starting to pay attention and uh, you're really kind of changing that, that paradigm of, of healthcare. I, I truly believe. And I, I agree with you when when you say that, uh, you know, this is a model that I think should become the standard globally. Yeah, other important thing is how to use technology today compared to 20 years ago, huge advances in technology. Like we conduct tumor boards, 400 oncologists participating, discussing cases and virtual tumor board and mixed reality. Like, you know, in a tier two, tier three city, if you don't have a proper surgeon, uh, you know, you can have your uh, virtual uh, surgeon go there virtually and help the surgeon to operate. So, you know, this is this kind of mixed reality and avatars going uh, to different places. We are already doing it. I, I think it is just phenomenal what, how technology can be blended into this kind of uh, uh, in cancer care and bring in, you know, like within minutes, for example, if I have a complicated case, uh, today, I, you know, in my clinic, actually, I saw a very complex case, and uh, and I, I could bring in pathologists, radiologists, uh, and medical molecular gen- genetics people, medical oncologists, surgeon, everybody together on virtual within a matter of minutes, and and review the film, discuss the case, and give an advice to the patient who was far away. So this is what is going to make a major impact in healthcare in the future. And, you know, the world is going to become borderless. The world is going to become smaller because it doesn't matter where the patient is, whether the patient is in Nairobi, uh, uh, Bangalore, or in New York, it doesn't matter. We'll be able to really bring together the experts and give the advice. Now, that is uh, that is absolutely amazing there. Um, 
No, again, I love it. I love the marriage of technology, the marriage of purpose, the marriage of, of uh, you know, just really treating people like human beings. And it's amazing work you're doing. Um, on that note, uh, I kind of mentioned at the end of the bio there, but I kind of want to touch on it real quick before we work to get out of here. Um, you you mentioned it mentioned something about um, education scholarships. That that's something that you're you're doing is is funding education for for folks in and around India, I presume? Uh, We have a a rural school for not 20 years where nearly 500 children are there every year. And we provide literally free care for them up to end of high school. And we support them even beyond high school, uh, depending on what they would like to do. Uh, So from this remote village now, children have come out who have become lawyers, uh, computer engineers, uh, and several of them are in very good positions. So, you know, and it is really, it's a proud moment to see that this can be achieved because I always believed, like the women program we have where we have empowered women who were, you know, who really were in a very uh, remote area, you know, very primitive at that time in 2003-04. Today, if you see them, they can speak to 1,000 people or more. They're highly educated, articulate. So through microcredit system, we have transformed them. So it really shows, like I said, excellence has no borders. It really shows intelligence is there, whether it is rural or urban. It is the opportunity is what we have to provide them. It, how do you bring uh, you know, people who are not privileged to the privileged level? So that they can do. Because when you look at uh, you know uh, parents who are wealthy, it is not only the genes, the inheritance of the wealth itself gives them an upper hand over others because through that they can go to private schools, high education, and even an average student can become very good. Whereas in the rural area, it is literally impossible for the average student to shine. Only those who are extremely bright, brilliant come out of it. They're only a handful. So my pilot project has been to show that these kids and these women are all equally good they can come out provided an opportunity is given to them. And that is what we have been doing. And I'm now creating a think tank, a leadership training center uh, near uh, about three hours from Bangalore, where uh, I have about 25 acres of land. I'm creating a retreat. And my wife is an artist. She does artists in retreat. Together, we want to create a platform to bring talented kids and those who really have different, different walks of life and how do you bring it up uh, to the level where they can shine coming from underprivileged society? Now, that is my last stance. Hopefully, you know, I will put some effort into that. I have a good team to succeed in this. And again, you know, you look at the society, how they treat, uh, you know, people who are powerful uh, are the ones who dominate. How do you really give an opportunity for others to come of age? And that has always been historically a challenge. Uh, you know, obviously, people who born to privileged people shine. Uh, wealth doubles up on wealth, and the disparity between the wealthy and the, and the not so are very huge in India. And you know, we have to close the gap. And this is one way I think we can close the gap. By you know, this is only a trial. And obviously, we can't change the entire country. But to show by doing this, maybe others will follow. No, uh, I love that. It's, it's, I mean, it, it ties into the title of the book, right? Excellence has no borders, not just geographical, but uh, economic as, as yes. well. Um, 
Well, uh, Dr. Ajay Kumar, this has been a fantastic conversation here. We're, we're a little bit over 40 minutes or so at this point. Uh, before we close out, is there uh, anything we didn't get a chance to discuss that you want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? Yeah, I just want to say my whole, uh, you know, uh, when you take a leaf out of my life and understand, I, I like to say that it is the right path we should take. There are, we should never go for shortcuts. And I think the personal satisfaction, your conscience is your keeper, makes a big difference. And while, uh, while like we said, it is important that uh, wealth maybe, but money should follow you rather than you following the money. I think uh, in my view, to put it in a very brute way, money should be your slave. You should never be a slave to money. And that is when I think you get that uh, professional satisfaction and also you become a better human being where you start really giving for, for the society rather than saying, I want everything. I think that is, the, that is the difference what we started with talking about the true leadership, responsible leadership. And that is how I would like to end this. Mm, I love that. That is great words to to end on. Thank you for that. Uh, so folks want to find out more about you, about your institutes, how they can, you know, potentially help or what they can learn from you through Excellence Has No Borders, how a doctorpreneur created a world-class cancer hospital chain. Uh, what's a good spot for them to go find more information about uh, you and everything you do? I think they can uh, Google me, B.S. Ajay Kumar, A-J-A-I-K-U-M-A-R. And there's a lot of information about me. And they can also go to the website of HCG, Healthcare Global Enterprise. Uh, There is a lot of information about that. And uh, also, you know, I have an email, uh, B.S. Ajay Kumar at HCGEL.com. They can even mail. So there are various ways of connecting uh, uh, to me or my organization. And the NGO is called IHDUA. Uh, that also they can just use IHDUA and go to the website of the NGO, International Out- Human Development Organization. Okay, outstanding. No, I'll make sure that all that stuff gets into the show notes. So uh, those links are just a click away. And and folks, uh, take it, uh, advantage of uh, of those resources. Um, it's outstanding work that that's being done. Uh, I really love it. I really appreciate what you're doing. I love the the mission to make a change in the world and make a change in healthcare, especially in an area like oncology where it's so desperately needed. So, uh, Dr. Ajay Kumar, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for being who you are. And thank you for having an outstanding conversation with me and my listeners today on the Responsible Leadership thank Podcast. Thank you very much, Earl Brenham. I think you've been a great conversationist and you had very good questions. I truly thank you for uh, this 45 minutes spending with you. Thank you very much. It's been very fruitful for me. I have also learned a lot. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X, Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode.
Electricast. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid. Electric acid.